It's Flat Out RC time and welcome back to the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking planes, helis and drones. My name's Andrew Sill coming to you from the land down under Melbourne, Australia. Now, the reason why I say that is that a lot of you are actually not in Australia. Uh, I looked at some of the analytics of the podcast the other day and, and it's at least 40% of the audience is actually listening abroad. So, welcome. I hope you can understand my Aussie accent. Uh, again, got another good show for you. A special guest is Brendan Gell from uh, Boomer RC, uh, Advanced Radio um, as well. We've still got two brands, but we'll discuss all that uh, later. But um, they're an Australian manufacturer of electronic components for, for our hobby. And, uh, gee, they've got some good things that um, I've been sort of researching a bit more. And uh, let's just say good value. And some really smart technology as well. So stay in there. Uh, keep on listening because you don't want to miss out on my chat with Brendan Gell. But before we get to Brendan, let's have a look at uh, what I've been thinking about in the past week. Well, what have I been up to? Well, I went flying, which was good. I made it an electric only session. I didn't have a lot of time and and. I'm that kind of pilot that if I don't have a lot of time, I, I generally go towards an electric plane. Uh, I love my gases, uh, but to me, there's a little bit of extra effort. It's not a lot really when you look at it, but you got to fill the plane up and all that kind of start it up and flick it and all that. And sometimes my head's just not in that space, so I like having the electric plane. So I took my 48-inch extra String Flight Extra out, which is an always a good plane to fly, and uh, and my Viperjet Foamy um, EDF E Flight Viperjet just for a bit of a muck around with that, uh, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, a little bit windy, started to pick up a bit, but uh, a little bit windy, but still had a bit of fun. But oh, I've come to the conclusion that I am going to build up another electric plane, a thirty cc size electric plane. It's going to be way overpowered. I'm putting a Dual Sky forty cc motor in it probably run it on 12s maybe some smaller 12s packs to, to keep the weight down because uh, i don't like overloading small planes with heavy batteries uh, i'll weigh it all up and see i've got another 30 cc gasser and if it weighs, weighs around the five to five and a half kilo mark then uh, i'll be happy but uh just first foray into a bigger electric plane i've always sort of had smaller electric planes so looking forward to having that i've got the 3d hobby shop 330 LT. It's a few years old, but uh, it's something that I saved from back in my days when I was importing 3D Hobby Shop planes before they merged with Extreme Flight. Uh, so I've got that still sitting on the shelf that I'm going to build up. So, but it's going to take a while. I'm not going to build it up in a hurry. I'll just uh, got to sell another plane first to make way for the new plane. So we'll do that. We'll get the old plane fixed and sold, and uh, get into the new plane. But uh, what's been on my mind? Well, it was interesting uh, during the week. Uh, last week, I saw a comment from Extreme Flight founder Chris Hinson, and um, who I've met and is a great guy. Uh, he was responding to some commentary in regards to a price increase over at Extreme Flight for their uh, their aerobatic models. And if you don't know who Extreme Flight is, well, they're, they're probably considered to be the highest quality balsa aerobatic planes on the market, whether used for iMac or um, 3D flight. Uh, They've really been at the top of the game since they started, really. 
and uh, and if you've flown one, you know what I'm talking about. But they're not the cheapest plane uh, out there. They they're worth they're worth it though. So anyway, there's been a bit of a price rise, and Chris got online and and explained why there's a price rise because he's a really open book. Uh, he doesn't want to pull the wool over anybody's eyes, uh, and he always and, and he said this to me to my face. He said, "Look, it's just about." making some money to keep everything going and then have a little bit left over for retirement. That's his aim. He's not looking at becoming a millionaire out of this. So the price rise came as a result of really what's happening in the world. Uh, there are a lot of impacts externally or indirectly involve um, hobby manufacturers. So, for example, the price of balsa. And a lot of us don't really realise that the price of balsa is actually going up significantly. And a large reason for that is we see the growth of wind turbines around the world and the wind turbine blades are often made internally with uh, balsa. So there's huge demands for balsa wood and that is driving up the cost. So, of course, they're paying more money for their blades. They get the balsa, but now the price to the, the hobby companies has gone up as well. So your raw material cost is going up straight away. But the other surprising one, and I can't find the message. I don't know if they pulled it down or what, but uh, in his message he mentioned that uh, the price of shipping, this is from, from China to the US, had gone up considerably. And, and I'm not talking about a few hundred dollars. It went up thousands. And I think that could be as a result of the whole COVID situation and, and, and the massive disruption in supply chains and therefore people sort of capitalising on that increasing cost. So, you know, the, the manufacturing cost is the same. The margin that, that the extreme flight would put on the plane would be the same, but there's all these other factors that are driving up the, the cost of the aircraft. And and it's hard for an organisation in the hobby to soak up that extra cost. They will, over the years, no doubt, extreme flight and other manufacturers have soaked up certain price rises, but it gets to a point where you can't hold that anymore. So there was quite a significant price rise, as Chris mentioned, and, you know, uh, it's not because he wants to, it's because he has to, to keep the doors open. And it got me thinking, and I did respond to his post saying, you know, look, offering support, saying, you know, anybody that has flown an extreme flight plane has never ever complained about the price of the model. Never. I've never heard anybody uh, complain about an extreme flight plane. As soon as you fly that plane, you know that, you know that you're, you're flying something that's special that doesn't fly like a lot of the aircraft. And, you don't need to believe me, but go and buy an extreme flight plane and go and fly it, and then you tell me what you thought of it, and I can tell you now, you're going to love it. My 48-inch extra that I flew on the weekend literally changed my whole pathway in what I invested my personal money in as far as models. I decided no more rubbish, just buy good stuff because it flew so much better than anything else and so easy to fly, and that's what you get with extreme flight. So you know, I let my support and said, yeah, you've got to do what you've got to do, and the big, I'm a big supporter of hobby companies because it's not a lucrative business like people think. If you think that these people are running around with millions, they aren't. It's it's the reason being is that we the hobbyists don't want to pay a lot of money for our gear. It does start to add up because you know if you look at a model airplane, there are a lot of components that make up a model airplane. A radio control aircraft, you know, transmitters, receivers, servos, motors, fuel tanks, you know, fittings, servo arms, you name it. There's a lot. So the total cost does start to, to add up if you're buying reasonable stuff and bigger, bigger models. 
But, uh, yeah, they're not making a truckload of money. And I think that if the last thing we need as hobbyists is extreme flight to go under, if they go under, there's, there's some other good manufacturers, you know, like Tony Tan over at Pilot RC is doing a great job as well. But imagine if Pilot RC and extreme flight didn't exist. Where to now for the Abbott Aerobatic Flyer? If they want a Bolsa ARF plane, where are you going to get one from? There's a few other Chinese manufacturers, Skywing, things like that, but you know Australia doesn't have Skywing planes. You know we've only we only really see Pilot RC and uh, Extreme Flight at that end of the Bolsa market for for aerobatic flyers. Once in a blue moon, you'll have Hangar Nine might produce something and that might come into the country, but uh, definitely Extreme Flight and Pilot RC sort of dominate. Uh, the airspace when it comes to freestyle aerobatic models, especially, and even in iMac now, very, very popular as well with their larger, um, you know, 125-inch models, you know, extras and lasers and things like that. So I think we have a vested interest in uh, keeping the manufacturers alive by having to pay that extra. And I know it hurts to pay a little bit extra, uh, but the way that I put it is, well, save up for an extra month. Um, or two months or three months. It's not going to change the situation really, you know, if you have to wait two or three months to, to buy that model if, if you didn't have the money there and then. Uh, and, you know, just work for it. Work for it. And, uh, you know, we teach our kids those lessons. I taught my kid a lesson this year. He wanted a new gaming PC. And I said, well, I'm not getting one for you. You'll have to earn it. You'll have to save money. And, uh and I said to him a year, it was almost a year later, he got the PC. And I said to him, hey, Charlie, all that pain and suffering of getting, you know, wanting that gaming PC and arguing with me and all that kind of stuff, what does it mean now? He said, nothing. I said, exactly. Once you get it, that, that extreme flight model, when you get it into the air, you won't be complaining about the price. So moral of the story, support the industry as long as they're doing the right thing, all those good manufacturers out there, Yes, prices will fluctuate, but they're doing it for a reason. It's not because they want to go and buy a new Ferrari. Because I know Quincy Henson does not have a Ferrari. He might like one, but he doesn't currently have one. Well, as mentioned earlier, Brendan Jell is our special guest this week. And uh, he's a really nice guy. I've had a few chats with him now. I saw him at the Wangaratta Jets event. And I mentioned to him, I said, Brendan, I want to get you on the podcast. And... Uh, you know, I just, I just had my little uh, little editorial piece on supporting the hobby, and and uh, Brendan and his father Rick are an Australian. They run an Australian business, and uh, with a lot of manufacturing done here within Australia, and uh, their developing products are now being used worldwide. And the they've got a business called Boomer RC. So if you get online, and I think it's boomerrc.com. Let me just turn my internet on. Uh, just going really, really slow. But uh, Boomer RC, yep, B-O-O-M-A-R-C.com, BoomerRC.com. And they have a um, another brand. So Boomer RC is the, is the store and Advanced Radio is their uh, brand of electronic components that they make. So they're doing things such as switches. Know, redundancy switches where you can have two batteries and you know managers all that they're doing um uh and various different types of switches like they've got a new switch q switch for turbines which um brendan will talk about but they've got uh like power distribution boards um power distribution board kind of things with um built-in gps something called they call smooth flight 
they've got some cables, some servos, servo matching solutions, regulators, batteries. Uh, so really what they're, what they're doing is building stuff that's sort of that radio control gear back as far as the electronic um, electronics go in our model. So, uh, and they've been doing it for a while and it's this is not a paid thing. I'm not getting paid to, to pump their tires up, but uh, wait until you have a ch- hear what, what Brendan's talking about and you'll see smart guys trying, trying to really build some quality stuff for us. So enough of my yakking. Over to my chat with Brendan Gell. Well, it's guest time, as I've just mentioned, and joining me this week is a, a man from the industry that's doing great things, both him and his father. It's Brendan Gell from Boomer RC. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Well, uh, Brendan, uh, a lot of us in the in the in aero modelling know who you are and, and your family's background and, and and what you do. But where did your journey start in aero modelling? Uh, so, funny story, um, living in the Illawarra region, we had a, a fairly uh, substantial modelling aero club um, about 20 minutes away from us. And, um, I have an older sister at the time who used to play netball. Anyway, went to a game, uh, one of her games when I was uh, about eight years old, I think it was. And um, we saw these things up in the distance flying in the sky and Dad and I hopped in the car and headed over and that was pretty much it. Um, I'd always been fascinated about planes up until that point. Um, I remember going to the news agency, saving up money and buying the magazines, which had all the uh, the war birds and the, uh, the jets in them. Um, and... Once I saw the models fly, it took me probably about a year or two of just making stick models until I actually got to fly a, uh, a trainer aircraft, which at the time from memory, I think I was 10 when I first started flying. Um, and my first aircraft was a, a yellow Kyosho trainer high wing with um, an OS 40, 40 in it, which was uh, that, that blue color. So it was quite a striking model. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I see them around a bit. Yeah, yeah, they uh, they fly a treat. Anyway, flew on that for um, for a couple of months until I, I went solo and then started getting into it. Well, at the time, iMac was actually just forming, um, which was uh, which formed under the ASAA. So I pretty much went from that into a little bit of F3A, started competing into F3A, um, and then from F3A into a bit of iMac as well uh, when I was about uh, 11 or 12, I think it was. Okay, so, so we're talking about what, early 2000s here? Uh, yeah, it would be about that, yeah. yeah. Okay. So you got into the iMac thing, right? And then um, we obviously well, kept on progressing from there. I know that you're into jets now as well. Yeah, yeah. So funny. The reason I guess I, I got into iMac was uh, because uh, my dad and Steve Richardson pretty much worked together to start with with uh, Warren Leach and a couple of other guys. Um, so I, I kind of guess I was dragged into it more than, <laughs> yeah. than anything else, but fell in love with bigger and bigger planes. Um, that was when planes were just getting to that, that next stage of, of size. Um, you know, a 100cc motor, which is fairly commonplace these days, uh, was, you know, a huge thing. Um, I don't even know if the DA-150 was out at that point, but it was like a, whoa, they're, they're big aircraft, um, especially coming from something like a 40, 
size trainer. Um, but yeah, progressed on from that into uh, a little bit of scale stuff and then into the, the, the turbine scene. And um, so predominantly flying turbines and, and iMac at the moment. I've got this saying that I think that uh, if, you, if you hang around long enough in the hobby, you're going to have a turbine. That's the way things seem to be going That uh, at some point in time. And, and you know, the, you've really covered a lot of bases in that time, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh. I love flying. I love flying everything. And it's amazing how um, how every different facet, so scale flying, although it's almost the same as, as all the others, has its own niches where you're trying to make the, the plane look and fly a little bit slower so it's more realistic and everything's about making it realistic, whereas jets is anywhere between going fast to um, seeing if you can do 3Ds or just loving the sound of it. Um, you know, iMac is, is all about trying to make planes that aren't perfectly built fly perfectly built, fly nice straight lines. Uh, F3A is, is like what you call the F1 of, of flying. Um, even did some pylon racing for a time, actually. And I mean, that's just about going as fast <laughs> and hard as you possibly can. Yeah, I can't keep up with pylon races. I just don't think my, my brain goes that fast. But, <laughs> the, but it, it's interesting. Like, I, I like how you put it in that you, you talk about it being, you know, there's all different categories of, of of aircraft provide their own unique challenge you know um you know whether you're trying to fly scale like versus flying a glider or a pylon racer if you really take up that challenge like well i saw you at the recent um wang jets event and that was my first time flying a turbine jet and the biggest takeaway <laughs> i had from, from that besides i just had an awesome weekend it was just awesome but uh, was that I'm really looking forward to learning the nuances of flying a turbine. Like I can fly a plane and you can fly a plane, but to go and fly a turbine, there's some extra added things to learn and to accomplish. And I'm looking forward to that next challenge because I think that's how I, I treat my hobbies. I really like that attainment of skill. Um, yeah. It sounds like you're, you're in that same realm as well. Yeah, yeah, it's something you were right about, you know, eventually if you spend enough time in the hobby, you, you eventually get drawn to turbine models because they just sound and smell different to every other thing and every other type of model in the hobby, um, you know, and they've got that real realism about it, I think, which we all enjoy. Um, but one thing that I will say to anyone looking at getting into turbines is there's there's certainly a learning curve. I know coming from iMac, which... Um, those planes land on a dime. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, they're, they're almost kites with with motors in the front of them. They're so light wing loading wise. Coming into the turbine fraternity, where you've got to try and keep your momentum up, but also get the thing what we call dirty, which is full flaps down, speed brakes out to get it to be stable enough to land. And you've also got to work with the um, the spool up time of the turbine. It's not like a prop where. It, as soon as you hit the gas, air flows over the wings, and you've got that that pull. There's a there's a spool up time of depending on the size of the turbine um, can be up to two to three seconds. Um, and if you overshoot your runway, that two to three seconds feels like a lifetime. Oh, well, actually, you know what? I'm not I'm not joking. I've literally just come from the field, and the last discussion I had, as we do, you know, the many discussions we have were at the field, was with a guy about that about. When I my second flight, I had to go around. I just felt like I was going too fast, and it felt like an eternity. By the time I'd flicked it to the full throttle, and the and the turbine responded, and this plane is <laughs> luckily we're at Wangaratta, and there's plenty of runway, and I knew I could land it. It wasn't going to be an issue if I had to come down, but mm. it was just gradually, you know, sinking. 
and I'm thinking, when is this turbine going to kick in? And it finally kicked in, but it felt it was probably two seconds, but it felt like yep. ten. <laughs> like yep. I had enough time to think, okay, come on, okay, now, okay, yeah. thank you very much. Now we're moving, and yeah, I, I think that's the that's one of the biggest things for me, and I think that's what puts that's that when with a newcomer, that's what they're fearful of is coming into land and stuffing it up, but. Um, mm. To be honest, you know, I was flying a Viper jet and it was fine. I, I was, I was okay. But yeah, but like you said, like like little nuances of like the turbine and stuff like that is is interesting. And I, I suppose even when you get into like more warbird rather than a sport jet, there'd be more challenges than than you know with a sport jet. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, these days sports jets are so forgiving. They've been designed with. Um, you know, huge thick wing cords. I mean, you look at something like the, the little T1 that I had, um, or even you know up to the big Havoc or or, or a Voyager, both big models. They're um, they're designed to fly both slow and stable, but also with enough power behind it, you can really get the momentum up on them. Um, for anyone who's looking at getting into the turbine scene, my recommendation would be um, to come out to a jet event first to see how things happen and, and what to expect and, and ask around. But when you do have a model or, or you, you're ready to fly one, come out to an event like Wayne Grata Jets or, or West Wyalong when it's on and you'll be helped by a lot of people and you've got a full-size runway um, to to take off and land on. So you get to learn where the, the, the threshold to that model is. And... Um, uh, being able to travel overseas has actually been a uh, an interesting insight for me. In Australia, because we fly at these huge events, which is is a blessing, um, it's amazing how big we actually fly and how how fast we land a lot of these models. Um, we get away with a lot more than they do overseas, although they've got tarred runways and and they're uh, beautiful flying sites. Most people still fly out of their smaller clubs. And after seeing a couple of pilots take off and land and fly around overseas, um, it's amazing just how slow you can get a jet before it starts to bite you. Um, we there's there's this view uh, in a lot of people's minds that it's a heavy plane. You've got that spool up time. I'm carrying say two to four to eight liters, depending on the size of the model of jet fuel. It's going to fall out of the sky like a brick. Um, but it's amazing how how forgiving they can actually be, especially when you're talking about sports models like sports jets. Yeah, I will. The way I described how my my Viper jet sport jet flew was uh, a heavy pattern plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it just felt. Of course, it is heavier. It was about eleven kilos, but a, and versus say five kilos or whatever a pattern, pattern plane is about five kilos and it's same sort of dimensions two meter by two meter in a kind of way um mm-hmm. but it um yeah it felt like a heavy pattern plane but tracked beautifully but yeah it was just getting that so the actual flying it was okay the approach was okay the speed in which i could bring even when i dropped the flaps it was just no mixing required um mm. it was a puppy dog to fly and i felt very confident you know after the first flight as well flying it but um but your your recommendations are a hundred percent spot on and i can vouch for that because going to a jet event like the wang jets event and maidening my plane in my first turbine flight i couldn't have thought of a better place to do it because i had the right people there around me to support me to give me guidance uh and a plenty, plenty of runway, plenty, plenty of runway. My theory when I was at Wangaratta was as long as I've got the plane over the black stuff, I'm okay. 
that yep. it's going to land. As long as it's over the black stuff, everything will be okay. And then even with a crosswind, it was not a problem. So, yeah, I 100% agree with everything that you said about that, that if you want to get into turbine jets, go to your next jet event, observe, um, you'll learn a lot. And that's where the expertise is at. That's the way I put it. Yeah. But well, the- I can tell a story where I actually had a flame out um, and I was with, with a turbine model, quite a large one. And uh, it was only the fact that we were at a full-size airport. Um, I was coming past myself from, uh, I was probably 100 feet up, um, going relatively quickly, but it was a scale model. And I was already pointing into the wind at the time when the turbine flamed out. The last thing I was going to do is try and turn it back around and then come in. So it was only the fact that the runway was, you know, four or 500 metres long down that side. I ended up putting it, putting, landing the model with retracts down um <clears throat> on the on the tarmac 200 meters down the runway um but it was if if i had been at a local field then i would have been um, cutting donuts to try and get that mole back in so having <laughs> to put it nicely having having the ability to have a full-size width of runway as well as a length of runway makes a huge difference to to your confidence and once you again once you've learned the flight envelopes of your particular model because every model is different you can take it to your local club, and if they will be happy for you to fly there, then by all means, go and fly. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, I think I came away from my first jet event thinking this is just the perfect place for jets to fly and and being a jet-only event that it's just we could have four planes in the air, four other jets, a bit like when you go to your local club and you get your, your prop plane out and you don't have an issue in saying, oh, I'll go and fly with, you know, Barry's got his uh, cub up, I'll go up with mine, you know. Um, whereas at a local sort of your local field, the turbines are sort of the rarity in most situations and they in a kind of way can disrupt the, the pattern of flying, you know, that everybody goes, oh, you know, Andrew's going to go and fly his jet now. Well, that means we can't fly. We'll let him go and we'll have a fly after him kind of thing. Whereas at the jet event, I, I was I remember standing on the flight and I'm looking back and going, this just works. That's what I just thought to myself. Yeah. This just works. Not Nothing against people who want to fly their turbines at their local field. For me, I'm keeping my turbine as in a jet event plane. I really yeah. am not interested in flying my jet at the local field because I'll take a prop plane and whatever, but I just want to protect that experience of taking it to the jet event and, and fly it in those in that environment. So yep. Um, yep. You, you'll probably find, and I used to find with when I was doing iMac practice uh, locally as well, is you tend to have the sky to yourself as the models get bigger and, and say, more advanced or more expensive. Um, but it can also, instead of people being afraid to fly with you because your model's either going faster or making more noise, um, it, it can also be the fact that people just enjoy watching those particular types of models. I know jet events where people, the public will turn up um, just to, to watch them fly because they sound great, they look great, they've, they've just got, I don't know what it is about them, but they just bring people in and they just want to watch them. It's just yeah. an amazing, amazing thing. It's true. Well, at the field today, we had Dave Shivers made in one of his uh, his new turbine, A ten Warthog twin turbine, and oh, beautiful! Everybody stopped. Everybody yep. stopped. The cameras came out, and um, it got off the runway. It took a bit of a run up. I tell you what, I'm on the grass, and it took a bit of a runway, but it got in the air, and you know, it was all, all good. Flew it really well as usual, and uh, but yeah, people do love seeing the turbines now. So you have really, when when it comes to aero modelling, you've covered a lot of different bases, and and but I want to talk a bit about Boomer RC now. Just a little caveat: 
this is not Boomer's not paying me to have a chat with them about the the the, the business. I'm, but I'm just have been. I, it's you've been on my invite list for a long time because I'm genuinely interested about the business and the story behind the business because I love Australian born and bred hobby businesses and. You know, so we want to talk a bit about that. This the Boomer RC business. Mm-hmm. When did it start? Tell me a bit about that history and that those early days and how you you made the decision to go and do this. Um, so unofficially, it started in two thousand and eight um, with Rick, my father, um, starting to get into that those those larger models. Um, we were finding people the, the models were getting bigger and the the electronics weren't there to, I guess, um, accommodate those particular types of models. Um, uh, most countries, when you get over a certain weight limit, they have to go through like an MOP, which is a large model inspection permit. Um, and most countries, at least overseas, not so much in Australia, require dual redundancies on a lot of things. Uh, now, these days, you wouldn't find many people flying a 150cc model with two nickel metal hydrides and two mechanical switches leading into a single receiver on 36 megahertz. But when models are starting to get bigger, that's what people were used to on their smaller models, so they scaled it up. So in 2008, Rick sat down and said, hey, there's got to be a better way. And we start, he started working on designs for um, switches to start off with, to be honest. Um, after probably two and a half years, I think, of R&D, he came out with what was called an IntelliSwitch and a Wallaby switch, as well as an ignition switch. Um, the Wallaby or, yeah, the, the ignition switch was called an Iggy, Australian, uh, after, after Iguana. The Wallaby switch is pretty much self-explanatory. It's still called a Wallaby switch today. And um, the IntelliSwitch was actually the first switch in the market to be able to monitor the, uh, the the current consumption of both batteries. Now, this was right around the time of the, the introduction of lithium cells becoming more popular, um, but mainly around the life e chemistry of battery. Uh, from that, we took it to the field, tested in a whole bunch of, of our models, and it went off like hotcakes, if you can believe it. Um, I remember, because I was, uh, what, what, how old would I have been then? Probably about... 15, 16 at the time, um, maybe a little bit younger. Um, I I remember weekends where I didn't see him. He was either down in the workshop hand-making IntelliSwitches or Wallaby switches or ignition switches or batteries for people, either in the local club or, or around Australia or um, overseas at the time. Um, after years and years of doing that, the product range sort of continued along from there. Um, at the time, I was actually going to the university and um, doing a double degree of engineering and, and exercise science. Um, lost interest in it after two and a half years. This is a couple of years down the track, and said, "Hey, can I give you a hand?" So I was the uh, the second um, <laughs> person to join the MRC. <laughs> so, just uh, one step back. Mm-hmm. Obviously, your dad Rick had some knowledge of electronics was he working in an electronics field or you know he had a passion for it or where did he gain this knowledge to be able to build some of these electronic devices um his background is he's always loved electronics um so i remember him telling me the story of when he was working uh, when he was um 
playing in a band. He was touring around many, 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 many years ago. He um, got stuck in Mount Isa, I believe it was. They were playing a gig up there at, at a local uh, club. And um, we're talking like mid-20s, so lots of years ago. Um, and the wind changed. And um, I think at the time they were doing either gold or copper from memory. And uh, they had a smokestack. And when the wind changed, all the arsenic or all the, the, the pollutants came into the town. So they were stuck. So what happened was he went down to the local news agency, couldn't get out of town for several weeks, went to the local news agency and um, bought an electronics book and a PCB breadboard. Uh, anyway, spent a week in a hotel room playing with this breadboard, making LEDs glow. And from then the passion sort of grew. Um, after the after many, many years of sort of dabbling with electronics and, and music, he uh, started working for, I think it was Atari Computers at the time. Oh, I had an Atari. Um, which he can give you all the details about that if you <laughs> want to you know, have a several hour long conversation. Um, yeah, so he worked for Atari um, and worked in their, their sales department. But his level of technical knowledge obviously grew as he needed to be able to understand the PCs um, and, and the Atari computer rollout. Um, I believe from from then on, he went into um, work at Roland Corp um, oh, as yeah, part of the sales team. So musician, working at Roland, uh, working at, at domestic and international sales. Actually got to know uh, Tara Kakahashi really well, the, uh, the founder of Roland, who's um, unfortunately passed now. I think his son is in, in control of the business or, or in charge of the business. Um, but, yeah, Loved, loved what he did. Uh, I think he was living up in Sydney at the time. Moved down to uh, to the Illawarra and uh, opened a business called Eddie Roll, which focused more on combining electronics, so computers, synthesizing music, and um, and um, music suites. So they came out with a product called Band in a Box. And his one of his roles was to go around to all of the the, the schools and all the studios locally. And go, hey, you know, this this thing's going to be the next up and coming thing. This was before we could synthesize um, musical tones on our phones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember, where, where I remember those days. Yeah. So um, he's he's always been in love with with electronics. Um, from there, there was a couple of other different ventures that happened. But before and and during the early stages of, of uh, Boomer RC, he was actually working in the medical industry as a um, a software programmer. Um, sorry, a, a manager of software programmers um, in, in between Eddie Roll or, or working with Roland and um, working in medicine, he became a, um, a, a web design architect back yeah. when you had to hand code everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's safe to say that he didn't sit still. No, no, no. He's always liked to keep busy. Um, I think I've, I've pretty much picked that up as well. Um, so to give you the, the long story short, his love of electronics has been there since he was probably 25, maybe a little bit older than that. So it's it's not a skill that he learned on the fly. It's something that's been maturing over many, many, many years up until, as I said, he was working in the medical industry, um, uh, managing a team of software designers and, and, and programmers for uh, a radiology company. So they would do all the, the software packs for all of the uh, MRIs and all of the CAT scans and things like that. So the windows that the doctors would use and the software suite that the doctors would use was actually made by this particular company. Um, so it's one of those cases. It's, uh, it's one of those cases where uh, 
and it's happened a lot with different people that get involved in the industry side of things and, and, and inventing things and developing things is that your dad's had all this experience across multiple industries and now he's brought a lot of that experience and learnings into something that became his hobby and he obviously thought, well, hey, I can do this. There's a gap here. I can actually do this. And he's gone and done it. It's something like Ian Howard doing desert aircraft ignition modules, even desert aircraft engines starting up and um, extreme flight planes and Chris Hinson that he was making um, iMac planes for himself and a mate and they were having competitions who could make the lightest plane and all this kind of stuff. And that led into extreme flight being established and so it's yeah, you know, let's put it this way. I don't think you, I don't think you just woke up and suddenly were able to do this. It took a lot, of, lot of uh, time and investment to be able to get to to the point of producing what you've done, which is great to see. Oh, 100 percent hit the nail on the head. I mean, Boomer RC and and um, subsequently Advanced Radio, which is is the manufacturing arm, was born out of necessity, um, thinking about things that what would make this easier, what would make life easier for the pilot what would make things safer for the hobby what would make the builder spend less time in the workshop and more time enjoying socializing and hanging out with their their, their mates and actually going and spending time and flying um, we have nearly every one of our products was born out of that necessity to uh, one of those or, or multiple of those those facets it was designed around um, how do we make it more accessible for people is another particular one I can think of. Um, you know, it's it's we, we we don't just come up with an idea at Advanced Radio or Boomer RC um, and go, oh, yeah, we're just going to build that. Most of the time what happens is we'll get into a new um, a new part of the hobby or, or, or we'll start to see, hey, how can this be done in an easier way? I mean, a typical example is we have what's called a, a Q switch which stands for quad switch, four batteries in, four batteries out. That particular product um, came about when we were starting up our first turbine, which was a Kintec turbine, and we were also testing our lighting circuit. So we had to have two batteries for receiver, one battery for the turbine, and one battery for the, the lighting kit at the time in, in prototyping stage. And um, leads going everywhere wires going everywhere you know this connects to that up here down and around this is all just on on a, a miter bench which is what that was our test platform at the time um you know cables here batteries there we don't really know what's going to happen with this turbine even though it's it's you know everyone a lot of other people are using it so we're a bit hesitant we thought hey it's there's got to be an easier way than just having four batteries and four connections and things going everywhere what if we make a product where We've got four connections in, two of them are shared for the receiver, two, one connection out for, say, electric retracts and, and lights, and another one for your turbine. And they're all controlled by a single switch. So when the switch is, is closed, um, obviously a fail-safe design, when the switch is closed, everything's off. And when the switch is open, your model's alive and you're ready to go. Instead of having, as I said, two mechanical switches to for the auxiliary and the turbine and then another digital switch for your receiver, it's just, just trying to simplify things. Well, and it makes so much sense, really. And and it takes somebody to have that foresight to say, hey, I reckon I can build something here that's going to solve this problem. But, you know, there's one thing I wanna, wanna, that I've observed. And when you look at a lot of, especially in Australia here, which is the main experience I've got, is that there's a lot of dads, we'll call them, that had this idea to start building something and in the, for the the hobby and whatever. But it wasn't until their son 
came along that things really started to progress. That um, Michael O'Reilly down at Model Flight, it was mm-hmm. he was finishing university and said to his dad, "Come on, let's have a go." His dad had another career, but he was dabbling in selling stuff, and that grew that um, model engines. Uh, Mike Farnan, who I had in the podcast a few weeks ago, he had same story. He was a young kid, said to his dad, "Come on, let's give this a go." You come into the business, and then what ends up happening? Like, what did it? You know, were you just selling some stuff? You know, on the side. Did it become more commercial? What was your involvement at the start? Pretty much. Um, so it was more of just a what you call a hobby business at the in the first onset. So he was still working full time, um, and then this was the the weekend um, gig, um, bringing in some extra money and, and doing more what he enjoyed. Um, he continued like that for several years, and I think it was only around twenty fourteen, maybe twenty fifteen um that i came on board and we said hey let's let's have a good go of it let's see what we can make of this um and he came in full-time on the business i came in full-time on the business and it's it's grown from there um one of the major things we did was we said look australia is great and it's our local market but what are we going to do to go overseas how do we grow you know, we're we're predominantly a manufacturer, and what makes us special is we're a manufacturer that goes straight to the customer. So we can design products, but how do we get our products overseas? And uh, one of our stepping stones is we went actually to Florida Jets, which um, was only happened a couple of months ago. Now it's still running today. Um, the first time back in 2015, 2016, um, I'd have to double check that, and um, our business nearly doubled. From just that one trip, we thought, right, well, we've got a business now. Let's let's move it forward. Um, and then over the next couple of years, we've brought people on to help with the manufacturing process because it's always been our idea to keep it in Australia as much as possible. So we do a lot of our manufacturing in Australia. Um, we do all of our marketing in, in Australia. We do all of our um, QC process, everything in Australia currently. The only uh, we obviously have dealers uh, all across the the, the globe, um, and we have a US warehouse, which is our second stocking point because the the guys in the US love to buy local as well. So we give them that option. Um, but ninety to ninety five percent of it is is done in Australia. Um, trying to keep Australians employed and try and keep jobs local, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting because I would have thought that you a lot of this stuff could be made in China, but you're going to you know, local manufacturers that can do circuit boards or things like that? Yeah, yeah. So we, look, we do source our raw components from overseas, mainly because that's the only place that we can get them. Um, We've had PCBs done locally in Australia by a a company um, up in Sydney. And we also have what we call a pick and place machine, which is for PCB placement. So we get the raw materials in from, um, let's say supplier A, B, and C. We get the circuit boards in from supplier D, and then we actually manufacture most of it in house. So we place the components, we solder the components, um, we solder all the cables, we blow the software, we design the software in Australia. We do a final QC and test and casing, bagging, everything in Australia. See, I didn't know that. That's like I, I, to me, I thought, oh, they've ramped up their manufacturing. They must be going contracting out in china or something like that to get made up but um that's 
I don't know what to say. But I, I didn't, didn't realise. I didn't realise it at all. So well done. Good. Thanks for keeping it here in Australia. And and well, the other thing I noticed is that the range of products that you cover now just keeps on growing. That like it was only like I didn't know that you had um uh this new air system um the, like an air system for retracks, air safe. I I, I didn't yep. know you had that. And I saw it. I think about a week ago or something like that. And I went, gee, that's just so good. Let's just go at a high level of categories. What are you? What are you know? What are you categorizing your products now? And you know, and by the way, you use the name Advanced Radio, don't you? That's sort of what you brand the electric uh, the electric products, don't you? Or your, your little yeah, yeah. So ultimately, um, Advanced Radio is our manufacturing arm. Um, so that's the brand that you'll see on a lot of our products. Um, and Boomer RC is our retail outlet, so that's our hobby store. So Advanced Radio only sells Advanced Radio products, so that'll be switches, batteries, um, chargers, buses, you name it, Advanced Radio branded, whereas Boomer RC is free to sell models, nuts and bolts, fuel tubing, all of the accessory stuff to sort of bring it all together. Um, very similar to if you know about Horizon Hobby and Spectrum. It's a similar sort of story where Spectrum is the manufacturing arm, Whereas Horizon Hobby is the hobby shop that they sell from to the public. Yeah, correct. Okay. Um, so, in, yeah. sorry, go. there you go. The cat. So the categories that you cover now. Uh, so our brief as a, a company is we want to do everything from the receiver to the rest of the plane. So if you can think of anything that is required to make a model, it doesn't matter where it, it what type of model it jet, uh, iMac. F3A, sports model, scale model, whatever. If it comes, plugs into the receiver and helps you for the rest of the model, that's what we do. So we do everything from obviously our, our flagship products like our gyros, um, which we have two distinct types. We've got a smaller one, which is 16 channels, and a larger one, which is 26 channels, has sequences built in, regulator, you name it. It's the ducks, guts, bees, knees type of product. Um, from that, we do all of the cables. We have a, a, a range of cables. So ProLine Cables is our brand, I guess you could say. Um, they're all high temp silicon wires, so they can be used next to thrust tubes or around engines. They're also all braided, um, and we use gold-plated pins down to uh, a range of servos where all of our servos are designed to be super efficient on energy, very, very quiet servos. They all have soft start into them as well, and they're designed around the mid to extra large giant scale range. We do a complete range of batteries, both LIFE and LION. Uh, for the LION, we mainly focus on the, the 2S batteries, uh, and for the LIFE, we do 2S and 3S for turbine models. Um, both of those can be upgraded to what we call smart batteries, so they can become self-balancing. We've had a range of self-balancing batteries for a number of years now. Actually, most people, and uh, sorry, I shouldn't say most people, some people are still using batteries that are four, five, six, seven years old. They used to be called Max Packs. And I had a customer call me the other day and said, hey, I've got these batteries, they're six years old. They're Max Packs, but I'm still getting 80% capacity to them. Um, so they would be our main core products. And then from then on, you've got accessory products like the AirSafe, uh, like our range of switches. So uh, again, power management. So we've got a range of dual battery switches. Uh, what else do we have? We have uh, an eye charger, which is an onboard micro charger or mini charger um, designed around, again, giant scale where batteries may have to be hidden up the front of a plane, not easily accessible. 
Um, we do a number of, of different products, which are more accessory products based on that as well. Um, so everything that you can think of from the receiver back for the rest of your model, we can we either manufacture or, or, or we have some sort of brand product that will, will fit that um, that section, I guess. Yeah. Well, one of the products that I really the one that strikes me the best because now you've got your switches and, and often people over the years have said to me, oh, how can I build up some redundancy in say my 30cc size model or my 60cc or something like that? I go, go and buy a Boomer RC switch. It'll, it'll cover, you know, the dual battery and, and all that kind of stuff. But the, 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 I think the product that's getting a lot of attention around the traps from what I hear is the Smooth Flight series of um, products that you've got. Tell me a bit about about those and where people are using them and that kind of thing. But I just keep keep on hearing people rave about the the Smooth Flight products. Yeah, so uh, Smooth Flight actually started out as uh, a non gyro product called a Smart Bus. Again, we were looking at these bigger models and saying, "Hey, running this from just a receiver seems crazy." Almost, you know, the receiver is not capable to power 10, 12, 15... 20 servos plus retracts plus 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 what can we do so we started off uh about four years ago now i think it was um, a range called a smart bus 26 channel plugged into the receiver and had um servo sharing battery redundancy and came with the, the same color screen that our smooth flights do today which is a touch screen which was another game changer in the rc industry because no one had, had had a micro touch screen at the time. From there, we went from uh, what we call PWL, PCM inputs from the receiver, which is just like plugging a receiver, uh, a servo into your receiver, to the serial system, which is um, our smart bus ARXL range. Uh, so a single serial wire running down to your receiver, and you can get as many channels as that receiver and radio supply. Again, very similar features, had a regulator, had 26 channels, had the color touch screen, had um, server reversing and server matching on all servo outputs. And what made the serial system really uh, elegant to use was you could assign any number of outputs to any input from your radio. So if you had a, let's say, six channel radio, you could still use 26 channels as long as those six channels from your radio came in and were different functions. So we were building what we call expander boxes almost with a couple of other features built in. Then we thought, hey, these gyros are becoming more and more popular. Um, I mentioned before when we went to Florida Jets, um, Tyson Dodd actually flew over with us and um, took some models over there. And the place that we were flying, Lakelands, beautiful place to fly, um, They've either got a crosswind in your face or a crosswind in your back. And people, were, you know, Tyson doing his best flying, very good pilot. You could still see that his model was being buffeted around, whereas a lot of the other models over there weren't. We said, hey, what's, what's the story? What's going on? Oh, are you guys using gyros? I said, no, no, we're not using gyros. I said, you're not using gyros. What's wrong with you? Um, so we thought, look, this gyro thing is going to take off. Right around the time that quads were starting to become more and more popular um, and gyro technology was being developed. So we thought, well, we've got this expander. Why don't we make an expander with a built-in gyro system and see what the market thinks? Because we think that's the next thing that's going to make people's lives easier. Um, and that's how Smooth Flight was born. 
So as I said before, our smooth flight system has two main types, the larger ARXL unit, um, which is an RRS, redundant receiver system. So it's dual redundant batteries, uh, up to two to four redundant receivers, depending on what system you're using, um, regulated output on all 26 channels, freely assignable servos on all 26 channels, um, a three-axis gyro, three-axis accelerometer, um, it's pretty much the brains of a radio with a gyro inside of a box for your model. Um, we also have additional features on there as uh, triple sequences. So it's three separate sequences, one for gear, which is nine channels. So three for gear, three for inner doors, three for outer doors, a separate sequencer for um, canopy opening or bomb doors, um, which is the four channel sequencer. And then another sequencer on top of that which would be auxiliary two, so uh, ballistic shoot or whatever you can think of theoretically, wow. it'll do it. This is um, so much. So I, I, I'm just reading now off the website what some of this stuff does. And like even, even oh, where did I just read it? How you gyro setups can be set up for, for different sort of flight modes. Is that correct? So if you're in a landing phase, it will adopt a different gain level. Um Set up your gain for normal flying and smooth flight. AGC takes it from there, increasing and decreasing gain based on our proprietary algorithms. What's that all about? Yeah, so that's what makes smooth flight different from a lot of the other gyros out there is we have a specific uh, set of software that we've designed which automatically reduces and increases the gain up to whatever you've set as your maximum threshold based on the actions of the plane. Now, a lot of people ask, oh, do I need a, a GPS for this? Do I need a pitot tube? The answer is no, because what our system does is it's moving so much faster than um, a lot of the other systems and, and possibly that you can react. You know, I see the IC on board's moving 100 times faster than, than you're computing uh, when you're flying the plane. And what our system does is as you're flying along, if you've ever seen a plane with too much gain, it'll start to oscillate you get what's called either a wing wobble or an elevator wobble or a rudder wobble. And our system senses that before it even you can see it and will start dialing the gain back for you and doing dynamically. And as the, the wobble reduces, it will bring the gain back up. And this is happening as you're flying every second. So if, you play, if you're coming out of a steep dive and your plane starts to have that wobble, the gain's dialing back before you even notice it and before you're even pulling off the power. When you start to slow down, the gain's coming back up. And it's a dynamic system. So as the plane's moving through the air, the gain levels are constantly shifting up to that maximum that you've set. Um, and the reason why we went this way versus going to something like uh, GPS is because a GPS works on land speed, how fast you're moving from point A to point B. It doesn't care if you've got a 20 kilometer an hour headwind or a 20 kilometer an hour sidewind. So you think about it, your airspeed is going to change depending on what orientation you're going into or out of the wind. So the, the oscillation basis of having what oscillation is usually caused by going too fast. The gyro is sensing these movements in the plane is unable to react fast enough or is trying to overcompensate, will change depending on if you're heading in the wind versus heading away, like downwind. And so that's why we thought, well, land speed's not going to work. Airspeed is possible, but it's a difficult system to actually put into a model and calibrate, or it can be. Um, so why don't we make the system automatically sense what's going on with the plane and dial it back automatically? 
And that's where the idea of a smooth flight came from. So instead of saying it's a gyro, it's it's more than that. It's a gyro, but it's guaranteed to make the flight smooth, a smooth flight. Simple. Yeah, exactly. No, just reading about it, you go, the smooth flight is the is the perfect name for it. And, and when it comes to programming the smooth flight, how, how's that achieved? Um, so it's all achieved via the color touchscreen display. Um, if you've used a smartphone, you can set up a smooth flight. Um, the way the, the the thinking works is when you set up your plane, set it up with two ailerons, an elevator and the rudder outputs from your radio. And then obviously if you've got flaps and gears or anything like that, you can do that successfully. When you go into the smooth flight, it acts like a, a switchboard, you could think. So what we do is we say, okay, you've got channel one coming from your radio and on the screen, you'll see two bars, which mimic the servo outputs on the actual bus. And all you do is if the bar, if the box is green, you tap the box, it'll, uh, sorry, if the box is blue, you tap the box, it'll turn green. That channel is now assigned to that channel in your radio. So that servo output is assigned and you can do that up to 26 times if you want. It's really that simple. I always tell people if they're having, if they're struggling with the concept of it because they've used other systems, which may be a little bit more clunky or a little bit more outdated, is imagine you're standing in front of a switchboard and you've got channel one from your radio and you're just plugging it into as many outputs as you want. And that's, that's it. That's it in a nutshell. That's the simplicity it was designed around. I love that idea of the touchscreen. Like traditionally, a lot of systems you use switches. You know, you got to use the switch, and if you flick this button, it does moves the menu, and then this is the enter button, and all this, and it just becomes too complex. But going to a touchscreen just simplifies everything. I mean, you, you you're right. The I guess you could say that the iPhone brought out touchscreens and revolutionised the the market there, and or, or, or sort of not brought out, but brought it into their phone technology and revolutionized telephones as we know it. From there, it became pads and, and now laptops have got them. Um, it's most people these days, if they can see a button, they can click on a button. And that's the mentality that's coming around. As long as there's enough information for me to understand what's going on on the screen, I can understand and through a pictorial more environment instead of, you know, raw text just okay i've got to read three four pages of a manual before i kind of understand this if i've got a button that has a plane on it and a button that has a helicopter and i want to set up a plane i'm going to click on the plane button and that's pretty much how how the world works so that's sort of the design theory that we put into our products i've actually done a lot of work with uh, one of my customers outside of the hobby in in uh, they do mobile computing solutions you know like when the the australia post guy comes and you've got to sign on the screen they do those computers and there's yep. been a massive shift to the Android operating system for those enterprise-grade mobile devices, as they call them. And that's exactly the argument, that now you can you used to go from like these just text-based screens for these enterprise applications, for business applications, to a visual thing. And the first thing they're realising is that their staff can adapt to the new technology really quickly because now it's visual. And I think that's one of the – I think it's very daunting in the hobby when you look at some of the technologies out there, people go, oh, it's just too hard. I just, it's, and you know what happens? Once you've done it a few times, yeah, you get your head around it. But the smoother the interface to program these devices, the better off we all are. And I think you've know, moving to that touchscreen. And that display also not only acts as a, a setup display, but also provides information like your battery levels and things as well, doesn't it? 
It does. It does. Yes. Yeah. So we are on the main page where after the smooth flight starts up, we have two indicators which look like batteries, one for battery one and one for battery two. And the indicators go from green at 100 percent all the way down to yellow and then to red. And they're accurate to the capacity that you've set in the in the smooth flight. So at a quick glance, you can look at it. You don't have to read the numbers on the screen. Go, oh, you know, I don't need to know that I've consumed 3000 milliamps out of 5000 milliamps of my pack. All you do is you look at the battery indicators and go, okay, well, I'm about 60 percent. Cool. Let's go for another flight. And it's that ease of system. One of the other things we found about getting into the global market where you've got countries that don't speak English as a, as a first language is 90% of them will understand a picture of what a battery looks like. 90% of them will understand the picture of a servo. So if you can make it more pictorial, you cross that, that language barrier. And although we do have manuals and we're, we're increasing our manuals to cover all those languages, a lot of people who don't speak English as their first language who can't read a screen can go, okay, well, that one says that's a battery. Okay, I'll click on that battery button. Ah, it's taken me into a battery menu. Really simple stuff like that. And one of the feedbacks we get from first-time users is, um, wow, I can't believe how easy this thing is to set up. I really can't. After using other systems, this stuff is just second nature almost. Yeah, with that touch screen, I just I can't see why it wouldn't be easy anymore. And and you cover yeah. basically all bases. You've got a you've got a version for spectrum um, transmitters where you just plug in the satellites, and then um, you cover yeah every other. It doesn't really matter about what, what what transmitter brand you're using, is it? Is it you can you'll work with using that serial yeah using that serial protocol system. It becomes multiple uh, multi um, protocol is what we call it. So you can use the same unit which is our arxl unit with fataba jr Gropner, uh the newer spectrum receivers will it'll work with those because they're high voltage um fr sky is another one that that's sort of an up-and-comer and, and a lot of people are finding favor with um even some of the power box receivers you can actually use our, our system because they use an s bus output um one of the other features i'll just talk about is in terms of the ui is in when we go through and do our gyro setup, we actually do it via what we call a wizard. So if you've ever installed software onto your computer, you, you've used wizards before. It's the little box that shows up and goes, okay, tick this box, yeah, hit next, read this stuff, hit next, all that kind of stuff. And we thought about it and it took a lot of time to implement, but when you're going through a wizard, this process takes care of itself because you can only go one of two ways. You can either select something and continue or you can quit out and that helps to people to set up the gyro. When I'm over at events and, and shows, I actually set up these particular gyros, our smooth flight systems, within 30 to 40 seconds using some servos and someone else's radio. What I'll do is I'll get them to bind their radio to our system. Um, so let's say Fataba radio to Fataba receivers, plug them in, connect some servos into it and go through the wizard. And in 30 or 40 seconds, we do a quick check and go, okay, the gyro is going the right way. Have fun, go fly. You can take your model off. And it's that ease of access where people go, oh, gyro, you know, it's going to be hard to set up. You know, it's too much. I don't understand it. I don't want anything that's going to take over control of me. The smooth flight was designed around giving the, the user the ability to throw it at a model almost. It installs itself and then you go fly. And with that, uh, with the sort of, we'll call it the gyro functions, 
Can you turn them mm-hmm. off completely so you can choose when you want it on and off? That's correct, yeah. So what we do in the wizard is, firstly, we actually ask for a weight of the particular model. So for turbines, let's say it's 10 kilos or um, 20 pounds. Uh, we ask for what type of model it is, if it's a turbine model, um, a sports model, oh, sorry, a turbine model, a, a gas model, a glider or an electric model. Um, we take that into consideration for vibration calculations. So if you see a plane that's sitting on the ground with the motor idling over and the servos are sort of dancing around, we have calculations based on uh, what type of model you select to limit that factor. Um, it saves wear and tear on the servos, saves your batteries. We go through and then we say, okay, if you get your transmitter sticks, move them around to their extremes. That tells the gyro the maximum endpoints it can go to. Go through, go, okay, I want my gyro on elevator aileron rudder. One, two, three, it doesn't matter. You can use it just on rudder if you really want to. You can then go through and say, okay, I've mounted the bus upright in pointing forward. So that's why the Smooth Flight 26 actually looks like an arrow. You can read it properly. Um, Go through, go next assign a three-stage switch. So our gyro requires you to have an off position, a low gain and a high gain. Once you've done that, you flick the switch on your radio, it automatically finds it. Hit next, it goes, okay, thank you. You've set up your gyro. Just double check that everything's going the correct way and hit next. You hit next, the servos will give a quick bump to confirm and you're good to go. You can go fly that particular model. It's really that simple. Yeah, sounds simple. And, and that's why I think it's becoming such a popular system around the world, especially with the amongst the turbine set that, you know, look, let's be honest. If you're going to be going and grabbing one of these expensive turbines, you really want everything working in your favour and putting one of these smooth flights in is going to make a lot. I know I'd put one in for sure, you know, in a bigger model. Um, not a problem, but... Um, well, you mentioned Wangaratta jets um, happening a couple of weeks ago now, but um, at the event there was quite a, a severe crosswind. And you could tell the models that didn't have gyros versus the models that did have gyros. When you're coming into landing and the plane is moving straight down the runway, but the heading of the plane is actually 20 to 30 degrees off into the wind as it's flying to keep it straight. Unless that person is a really good pilot, that's the gyro doing most of the work. And that's where it starts to help because you've got these heavy models that are moving quickly. And that's why they're becoming favoured in, in turbine models specifically is because it helps you keep that tracking. It helps make the plane feel smoother and it helps the person or the pilot fly the plane to the extent that they want to fly the plane. Yeah, there's sort of been this negative connotation about gyros. And, of, of course, I'm all for banning gyros in iMac and Patton and stuff like that. You know, it, just, totally agree. it shouldn't happen because it's it's a challenge of skill. But when it comes to having a really nice scale plane or a big turbine, scaly kind of turbine, like that was the biggest talk at Wangaratta was the crosswind. That was the yep. biggest, and especially, you know, and there was a lot of talk, you know, amongst my circle because it was my first flight and they said you've got to watch out and all that kind of stuff. And I don't have a gyro in my in my, in my my Viper jet and I, I managed to fly it in okay. It wasn't too much of a drama. But like you said, there were gusts coming through that were close to 20 knots, crosswind. Mm. And you're flying a, a plane that you've invested some severe money. We're talking ten grand up. And I'm thinking, yep, yeah, got to have a gyro in this. Got to have a gyro in it. But, but I, it's not just about the gyro solution that you've got. It's 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 the value for money when you think about it as well. Right. So if you just want to talk about the, the, how much you outlay for one of these solutions, you get a lot for it because with a lot of other systems. 
you buy a distribution board that manages your redundancy and all that kind of stuff with your batteries and you know um, servo syncing and all that kind of stuff. And then you buy a gyro on top of that. Uh, you know, it, it really starts to starts to add up. Um, but you're bringing that all into sort of one kind of solution now by incorporating that inbuilt gyro. And it's pretty damn cost effective as well, and it's a touchscreen. And, and you know, by the yeah. way, remember, I'm not getting paid to say this. That's just my observation. And I don't have a Boomer RC smooth fly in any of my planes. But when I look at it now and I think about all the advantages, I go, man, more people need to get on this. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Thank uh, and, you. And, and, yeah, that's just me saying it. But but you've also – I've got some of your batteries. i put some of your lifeys in and, and that kind of thing. And um, so you've got, you know, the batteries. You've got the servo matching solution as well where, you know, anybody that's running twin – uh, servos on a surface and want to match them. Tell us a bit about that. Just give you a bit of a heads up. Does, the Smooth Flight does it as well internally, doesn't it? It does. So on every one of the outputs, on all 26 of them, let's say, or, or 16 if you've got the smaller one, you can do um, a three-point matching and a 15-point matching sub-trim. Um, and that particular feature came from more of the iMac and 3D models where You've got guys who, when they're trying to keep a nice straight line and pull an upline, the servos that they may be using on, say, their elevators or if they're using gang servos on their ailerons, let's just take elevators for an example, they're never going to be perfectly in sync. So we thought, well, okay, hang on. How do we get, let's say, 60 degrees of movement and make it so that as the servo's moving, they're moving exactly the same? And what you'll see is if you if you don't get it right, as you pull up, your plane will actually start to corkscrew to one side, whichever elevator is coming up or, or down. And it, it's another thing for the pilot to think about. So many, many years ago, what used to happen is people would mechanically match it and they'd get either two carbon rods on their elevators or even if, if you were going into the, the upper echelons of, say, F3A or, or iMac, two laser pointers so you could see the different movements in your servos. We decided that it's a great feature and it should probably be included for guys who want to fly more of the smart bus side of it, but it's also useful in things like jets where you've still got that difference in servos. Or if you've got leading edge slats where you've got two servos ganged together on one control surface, the worst thing and my personal, I guess, pet peeve is I turn a plane on and all I can hear is and the sound of servos buzzing. There's no need for it when you've got a system like this that you can actually match the servos and the less buzz you hear, guess what? The less the servos are working against each other, you're using less power out of your batteries, you're getting more power out of your servos, and the system has all that features built into it. And why wouldn't you? I guess you'd be crazy not to use them if they're there. That's true. Uh, it, as you talk, all I can think of is that I'm glad there's someone looking out for us. And I'm glad there's somebody <laughs> doing all this thinking because we. I, I always – I'm always very appreciative of the industry. You know, I've I've been exposed to it a little bit. I've met manufacturers and stuff like that. And everybody that I meet in this hobby that has started a business, especially in the manufacturing side of things, is extremely passionate about flying model airplanes. Extremely passionate. And it's it's those people that are, you know, and the reason why I'm so appreciative of the industry is that they give us the opportunity to enjoy our hobby. That. Here's little old Andrew. He just goes, oh, I need a battery. 
it's just a battery. We just take it for granted. It's a battery. But there's somebody that went out of their way to design that battery, source that battery, you know, build that battery, make sure that it's okay so that when I put it in my aeroplane, it's going to work. And it sounds yeah. it's really simplistic, but I think that we forget about that a lot. And, and a lot of people will sit there and make their assumptions, oh, they're just trying to make money. No, they're actually building stuff to try to make our experience better, and it is going to come at a price. And they should probably get paid for that effort that they're making. Because, like, how long, how much time do you put into research and development of products? Oh, um, years. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I, these smart bus and smooth flight systems that are now our flagship products actually started 10 years ago in a different form using what we call a CAN bus system. So you think about it over 10 years of R&D, not all the time, but 10 years of R&D of, okay, new chips coming out, let's test it, let's look at where that um, that can lay, lead in the market. There is probably lifetimes of effort and research and market uptake analytics that we do to see what products are going to work for certain markets because and what products aren't because no product is going to be perfect for every market and it's something that that i'm passionate about is i won't sell anything or i won't try and upsell anything that's not going to work for you if you come to me and say look i've, I've just got off my electric trainer and i want to get into a warbird and it's let's say it's got a, a 20cc or a 30cc engine in it i'm going to tell you you probably want to look at doing a dual redundant system so a couple of good quality batteries and a switch and a receiver and go fly that is a perfect combination for that particular market because although we all love our hobby and there's you know as you said before tens of 20s of thousands of dollars in the upper end a lot of people are still flying models that you would classify as, as say a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars and that's their pride and joy so they should have products that work for them in those particular models so that they can keep their pride and joy they know it's safe and that they can go and do what they enjoy because ultimately when as a manufacturer we rely on people, new people coming into the hobby and the hobby continuing. So our main point of view is obviously that we want to make a, a living. I'm not going to say that we don't. But the more people we can bring into the hobby and keep in the hobby, the better the hobby will be, the more it will grow, and then the more both parties will actually, you That's, know, prosper. Oh, it's something that I've been trying to – and when I had my magazine, that was one of the things that I was trying to say to, to a lot of industry players that, we have to we have to keep the dream alive. You have to build the market because if you build the market, you'll make more money organically. Like it's just going to come to you because there's more people that's interested. You know, if if and it's it's always hard when you know to get the industry to work together. It's just because it, it, people are comp competitors in, in a lot of ways. But you know, we can only sell to those people that are actively enjoying the hobby and, and spending money on the hobby kind of thing. The more people that are in it, we're gonna. It makes so much sense, but I feel as if there's been a bit of a drop off with that in recent times. That there's been a lot of businesses that um, have scaled back their promotions and things like that in response to declining sales, kind of thing. Whereas I'm like, no, you got to keep on coming out fighting, and 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 I think the way that you guys have done that successfully is through your support. 
you know, that especially in the Australian scene, you're a visible face. But you you get over to the US as well and go to some of their events. You're a visible face. You're there. You're talking to the customers. You're getting feedback. You're providing advice, which is is like you said, it's just the way to go. It's it's, and that's what we need. Like the thing that I loved about that Wangaratta Jets event is that there's so much that I learned. And I've been around the hobby for a while now. There's always something else to learn, especially when you're getting into a new category of playing. And even the nitty-gritty, I've had this philosophy for years. I've done a lot of work with technology companies. And, again, we see that finished product. We see that smooth flight product. And we stare at it and we just take it for granted. But I keep on thinking there's a whole bunch of thinking that went into that product, a whole bunch, heaps and heaps that we are not aware of, that we just take for granted. But if the biggest message I get out to people out there is that these guys at uh, Advanced Radio, Boomer RC, are really thinking for us. Like even your, your, your Proline cables and being capable of handling higher temperatures. Oh, well, I need uh, that. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I'm paranoid in my jet. I'm paranoid about the servo lead touching the thrust tube and burning out. I'll lose the model. Well, okay, another product that came out of – uh, because of necessity um, for two reasons is the, the Proline cables, and, and I'll talk a bit about them. Um, in iMac models, I actually have a Krill laser, Mark One Krill laser, and the way that the fuse, beautiful plane, absolutely stunning plane to look at, um, the way that the fuse is designed is it's quite squat and it has no turtle deck underneath for separating the pipes from the rest of the electronics. Anyway, finished, finished an event. So, sorry, dial it back a bit. I meticulously try and braid my cables or braided my cables with PET to stop them from chafing, rubbing through. Now, for the longest time, we've always used silicon-coated cables. All of our cables on our batteries, on um, our, all of our leads, any of our switch-type products, they're all that soft silicon cable coated. Um, we start at 20 AWG for anything carrying power and work our way down to about 16 AWG. Um, 28WG, the reason is it's the largest you can fit in a standard servo connector, like a JR or Fataba servo connector. Finished uh, 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 the competition, went to disconnect my batteries and found one of my silicon leads sitting on top of my tank. Uh, sorry, sitting on top of the canister. It, the cable tie broke for one reason or another, and it was just sitting there. Now, the PET had, had melted. Um, I mean, the canisters connecting directly to the engine, they get pretty hot. But the silicon cable bounced back. Now, if I had been using um, PVC-coated cable, I may have lost that particular model because the cable would have shorted onto the canister. The, can the canister would have taken out the battery. If I hadn't have been using um, a dual-redundant system like I did, I may have lost that particular model and never known why. So we thought there's got to be a better way of having a range of cables because we all use servo cables. There's got to be a better way that's cost effective, saves you time, and you can use it in any particular type of model that it's going to work. So the design brief we came up with was the cables have to be able to handle high current. They have to be able to uh, be able to plug into a normal servo lead. They have to be able to withstand whoopses like landing on thrust tubes because a, a you know a cable tie broke or a mounting part broke or landing on a, a canister or, or a, a cylinder head in case something happens. Um, and they have to be braided because if you're making up your own cables, 
it can take, at least for me, because I'm not particularly good at it, it can take, you know, half an hour to make one cable. And then you've got to go back through and rebraid it if you want to put PET sleeving on it. So why don't we make up a range of cables from, it started off at 200 up to 2.1 meters in 100 mil increments that you can say, oh, I'm building a model. Okay. Um, I'll measure that up. Yep. 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 All right. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, I'll put my order in. I need three at 1300, five at 500 and, and two at a, you know, a meter. And then within two or three days, they turn up, you pull them out of the packet, you go, beautiful. They work. Click, click, click. Okay. I can go fly on the weekend. That's where Proline cables actually came from. It makes a lot of sense. I'm, and they're not that expensive. Really, for what they are, they're not expensive at all, really. And a great safeguard, especially like flying turbines and, like you said, giant scale stuff where, you know, you might, you know, leads could come in contact with canisters and, and things like that. Gee, I'm, all le- of our, I'm learning all, a lot. All of our ProLine cables and all of our um, power cables are made by machine. So it's a repeatable process. The crimps are made by a machine. And there's nothing more daunting, at least in my mind, when I used to crimp cables and I'd be rolling out into the flight line and going, did I crimp that cable oh. properly? Is that signal wire going to fall out? Yeah. All of, that, all of that hesitation, all of that worry is gone. I've still got that paranoia. I've got that paranoia that I'm going to go and shorten the lead and I'll crimp my own lead and I'm thinking I'm going to stuff. I, I don't back myself in with a lot of building stuff. And I, I just think, no, nah, I just I just can't. I would rather leave a longer cable than I need than for me to go and crimp lead. And I've practised. I've practised a lot. I've got the machine, the crimping thing. But uh, that's – now, question for you. Mm-hmm. We saw in COVID this – explosion of sales and and that kind of stuff in the in the hobby what what has your COVID experience been like in the business uh our COVID experience was <laughs> was kind of difficult so we where we manufacture we had um three other people working with us so it was um, my father myself and three other people working to do manufacturing um qc and shipping when COVID happened, due to the restrictions, at least in New South Wales, we, we couldn't have them all in that space. On the other side of the coin, as you said, sales went up. So we had a situation where we were down staff, but we had an increase in sales. Um, I can't tell you how much of a stressful time yeah. that was. <laughs> I know, but it's, it's a common experience and it's it's still going to a certain extent. How How's... So how are you going now currently with your supplies of products? You know, and you know, have you have you are you experiencing a lot of, you know, a lot of computer manufacturers are experiencing shortages of certain components, which is delaying the finalization of the manufacturing process. Are you are you suffering from that as a bit as well? One of the interesting things is um at, at least at this moment in time, is we're getting a lot of delays. Uh, from raw materials coming in from China because, uh, as I said, we do order our raw materials like our ICs and um, certain like cable lengths and our our physical um, raw materials from China. Um, One of the problems we're having at the moment is the political background between Australia and China and certain tariffs that are happening are causing delays in in the freight network. So where we have a production schedule that says, okay, well, based on the previous several orders, um, you know, we expect if we put the order in now, they'll be produced and they'll be ready to ship in 30 days, 40 days at the latest. 
at the moment, what's happening and what we're finding with certain products, not all products, but certain products, that that 30 or 40 days is becoming 50 days or 60 days because there's so many other checks and there's there's this this cloud that's happening in the background, this political cloud that's happening in the background, which is causing certain delays. Not saying we don't get the uh, the raw materials, but it is causing a bit of a delay in, in production. Now, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about that except obviously put the orders in beforehand. Um, but I do know after talking with a couple of our dealers that it's happening on a global scale. There are companies out there that are putting orders in for models and one of two things is happening. Either the, the orders, they say, okay, well, it'll be ready in two months and two months becomes five months, becomes six months for, let's say, uh, a kid. Or what happens is, yeah, yeah, we can do it in 30 days, but the freight cost for a $5,000 model is going to be $2,000 to get it to you. And you, all you can do as a, as a dealer, I guess, when you're dealing with, with that sort of situation is say, hey, this is the, the, the end result. I can't, you know, I, I can't shave the, the shipping cost off for you to give you a sweeter deal because that's that's what I've got. That's what the, the shipping company has given me and that's the price of the model. Take it or leave it. So I do know that there's a couple of tricky things that are happening in the market and they unfortunately seem to be centering around China. Um, we are mostly unaffected by it. Um, as I said, because we manufacture in Australia, besides the fact that we have to get our raw materials, our manufacturing process being in Australia means we have control over when products are being built, QC, tested, and then shipped out. And although we have delays, we're usually pretty transparent about that stuff to the customer. Um, you know, if, if someone says, hey, you told me it would be a week or two, I'll say, look, I'm really sorry. I was told it was a week or two. I can't make it appear out of thin air. And I'm certainly not going to send out a product that's not being QC'd and tested properly just so you can go fly on the weekend. I'm, I'm really sorry. <laughs> and it's that's not how we run our business. Uh, and I think that it, there's a lot of business suffering the same thing that we're, you know we're we're stuck in a situation which is it's going to take us a while to get out of. I think, and it, and it's happening across a lot of different industries as well. And I mean, it's hard to say to people we just need to be patient. But when it comes to hobby stuff, come on, guys and girls, we can wait an extra two or three weeks. It's not as if most of us have have got more than one model. Go and fly something else in the meantime, or just take a bit of a break for three weeks because you'll be able to come back to it. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we just got to work through the situation together. The the thing is with the hobby industry, the, the industry being a hobby is it's people find enjoyment in it, and when people find enjoyment in it, they want the next thing, and they want the next thing, and they want it sort of now. Um, you know, I, I remember stories of my dad who used to actually not fly radio control but fly free flight when he was my uh, when he was younger when he was like 10 12 and he's telling stories of going to your local hobby shop putting an order in for a set of plans in the balsa and then having to wait three weeks or four weeks for the balsa and the plans to be printed and turn up that doesn't happen anymore if you go and if, if the model is in stock, let, let's take, say, Extreme Flight, for example, or even us, for example, if Extreme Flight's got a model in stock and they've got it in the warehouse, it's shipped to you in Australia or DA's got a model in stock and it's shipped to you in Australia and it takes three or four days for the courier to get it to you. If you put the, mo if you put the order in on Monday, it's expected 
by Thursday, Friday, that particular product will be there and you can build it for the weekend. You know, and I guess we see it a lot more, not so much in Australia, but we see it a lot more in the US where Amazon is a big thing, where people put an order in and then they get the same day shipping. Like they put an order in on Monday and then, sorry, Monday morning, and by Monday afternoon, it's at their doorstep. What a lot of people don't realize is Amazon is this multi-billion dollar, you know, business with thousands upon thousands of employees. Whereas um, I think I was last time I was overseas, I was talking with Dave, head of um, DA Engines, and um, DA Engines is pretty well known throughout the entire community. He's got 12 to 15 staff, and that's a big brand. So people apply this this Amazon idea to their hobbies because they're used to seeing it and they expect that that instant okay it's going to be there and we try and give people that you know if you order it on monday by wednesday thursday it's there for you so we we do try and give people that but delays happen yeah. <laughs> it's, it's happening across the board it's it's, it's happening yeah. across the board but you know like i said we just got to be patient through this as we all walk through, work through this situation but uh but fortunately, we're getting by. Like I was at the flying field today, and there's plenty of planes there. We're still kicking along. Hobbies going okay. Plenty of people, plenty of planes. So if we have to wait a few extra weeks, so be it. Now, let's just talk a bit about planes. What do you got currently got in your hangar? Uh, I currently have. Well, I'm actually uh, looking at a uh, Hangar Nine P47 Thunderbolt um, electric. So it's a, about seventeen, eighteen hundred. That's my little go-to model or it will be very, very soon. Um, I've also got a twin turbine SU-37, which is an older aviation uh, design kit. They don't actually make it anymore, um, which needs a little bit of a touch-up, new new paint job and a couple of new turbines. Um, through the business, as some of our demonstration models, I've got that Krill, which is a 2.8-metre Krill um, laser. Um, uh, we've got a 3.3 meter Compath Yak, the older style with the blade spar, with a ZDZ250 in the front of it uh, on tune pipes. Oh, gee. <laughs> it's a big motor. <laughs> it's a big motor. It's it's a lot of power. It flies a treat. It's it's the it's the easiest plane you will ever fly. It's quite daunting because it's 3.3 meters, but it's the easiest plane that you'll ever fly. It's it's amazing. Um, we've got the twin turbine Rafale, which is our, our I guess our jet show model um unfortunately it didn't make a uh, uh an appearance down at wayne Grad because we're waiting for turbines to come back after their um 20 25 hour service um i've got my uh, little t1 as well which is our go-to model um 2.2 meters wingspan got a 160 in it um super forgiving aircraft if you uh, i try and point people to it as a next step up from your beginner sort of turbine models like you, you, you click. Uh, what would be like an alarm or something like that? If you were going to make the next step for a sports jet, that's the one I push to people because it just works. Everything just fits in. It works. It's been brilliantly designed. Um, we've also got what's a a first edition T seven A, which is Boeing Saab's new trainer that they're building, which did make a demonstration at um, at Wangaratta. Um, I'm, Fortunately, during the landing, we had some prior damage from an event a week before, and uh, we couldn't fly it again because it, it had 
open back up again. Um, we were flying it up a casino as well, and that's the one I had the dead stick in. Um, we're, what else have we got? We've just recently put together a, uh, a six-meter ASK21 glider, um, which is, again, another pussycat to fly. It's, it's just amazing. Um, the hardest part is getting towed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, trying to find a plane <laughs> to tow that kind of size up. You know, um, I mean, it's we. I've, I've <clears throat> they're the most predominant models that we've got in our in our hangar at the moment. Um, we've got two or three F three A planes with electric and YS motors in the front of them. We've got probably over a hundred foamies that we take out to events and just you know throw around at the end of the day, and they're, they're heaps of fun. Um, we've even got the a, a sports pylon racer that um, is still there. Uh, what else have we got? We've got like ev- nearly everything you could come across. We even got a couple of RC helis, which we yeah. dabbled in. Well, that's what you need. You, I've, I've got a few helis sitting around. That I don't know whether I ever fly them again, but you know, I, if anything, I don't think I'd ever sell them. I just love the look of them, the mechanical nature of them. That I'd put them up on the wall or something as a bit of a art piece. Just have a look at this. How does this look? But um, Fine. If you ever want a talking piece for anyone to come into your house, put a four, a five hundred to a seven hundred size helicopter on the wall, yeah. and I guarantee you, yeah, it will yeah. become a talking point. Exactly. I've got this idea. I've got this idea of imagine if you've got an aeroplane and you cut it straight down the middle, right, vertically, mm-hmm. right, and then so now you've got two halves and you mount that on the wall. Yep, one half the plane on the wall. I want to do that. My wife won't let me, but I want to do it. Maybe I'll do it in the bedroom when she's not watching. I'll put this big 100cc, a half 100cc. If anyone's crashed 100cc and they want me to cut it in half, just yell out. It'd have to be a Mate, nice, perfect cut. You, you, need, you need to do it with like the, the plaque, like they do the big fish, the big game fish. Yes, that's you know, right. Big timber vacuum on it. That's and what it was like. Gold, gold underneath. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That's exactly what I need. Now, <laughs> You, you've been flying for a fair while. You're still a pretty young guy, and, and but you're going to be around for a while, I can tell. Um, what has been your favourite model so far, though? Um, my favourite model, oh, it's a tough one. Um, I've got, so I mentioned the T1. That's my current favourite model because it's just brilliant to fly, super forgiving, goes fast, goes slow, aerobatic. It's just an amazing model, and it just works. Everything just works on it. It's brilliant. Um, in terms of, of my all-time favourite models, I had a Cap 232 when I was oh, yeah. 12, I think, maybe 13, with a Zenoa Zenoa in the front of it. No. Um, yeah, I think it was a Zenoa in the front of it. Anyway, this thing was amazing. Not a huge aircraft. Um, by today's standards, probably 1.8 meters, two meter wingspan. Anyway, the the motor was so overpowered for the front of it that you could put it in a, a, a similar to a waterfall today, and it would actually just sit there, going end over end over end over end over end. Oh. With being a 13 year old kid before 3D was like really big, was just the most fun thing you could ever do. You know, spend Tank after tank of glow fuel going, wow, 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 wow. Kind of in the sky. Oh, um, my, my next favorite model would be the, um, and I actually sold it a couple of years ago, would be an extra 260 by Combath. That was my, um, my, I mentioned the father again. 
he and Steve Richardson had the first two in the country when they first came out. And they were, I'm pretty sure they were both yellow, the yellow taxi scheme. If you know anyone in OMAC, you mentioned a yellow taxi scheme. They I know, know exactly what you're exactly talking about. Yeah. Um, anyway, that was my first IMAC plane. I was flying, we were sharing a plane at the time. And um, anyway, long story short, when I got back into IMAC, I spent hours looking at RC Trader and looking at, at Facebook forums. And I found one up in Queensland and I bought it. And the amazing thing was we actually kept the motor out of the first one and put it in the second one six years later. And I kid you not, what we did was the motor, we mounted it up exactly the same, obviously, you know, slightly newer kit, slightly more modern. Um, put the motor in the front, poured some fuel into the cylinders on this DA150, left it overnight, turned it over five flicks in the morning, and it went. And it was just like the, the memories came flooding back to me. <laughs> no, I like that. And, I like the extra 260, the company. That, that's a really nice um, – well, I'm 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 big. Always been a big fan of extras, and um, yeah, that's that's uh, one of my favourites. Actually, the shape of that. In in terms of a, an iMac plane, um, it's a really really good shape and size. It was one of the first uh, mid wing, or it was designed as the first mid wing. And um, in in talking about the full size, um, but it's what's an interesting characteristic about it is it actually wants to speed up in the downlines. Whereas a lot of your yaks and even the laser that I've got, they actually slow down the, in the downline. The extra 260 seems for some reason such a slippery aircraft, speeds up in the downlines. And I don't know what it is about that particular model in that particular scheme. It is my all-time model, favourite model that I've flown. If a little bit about me personally, if I could ever get my hands on an F-14 with twin turbines, <laughs> that is my fantasy model. Of, of but I'll tell you what, I fell in love with... Um... Uh, what's his name? Mike, um, Mark, who's got uh, at Wang Jets had the um, the Sukhoi with the twins in it. Yeah, yep. oh, fell uh, that Sukhoi shape. I'm falling in love with that Sukhoi shape now. Not getting one, but I'm falling in love with the Sukhoi shape. I'm thinking a beautiful looking plane. Uh, hopefully, next time, um, I see you down in the jet meet, I'll have the uh, the aviation design 37. Yeah, yeah. As soon as you mentioned that earlier, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I've got to see that plane fly. Well, the, we actually um, bought it secondhand and detailed it up to take it over to Top Gun. What's interesting about the 37, I, I won't rattle on too much, is it was a single-seater fighter that they the Russians made in the Sukhoi range. Um, and they made, I think, two or three of them from memory, and all three planes crashed. There's, there's no full size that exists today. And the reason that we believe that's the case is the SU-37 had Elevons. It was all still fly-by-wire. Elevons, um, flaperons, canards, and thrust vectoring. And it was all, all done mechanically by wire by a single pilot. Wow. And although the plane was notorious for being incredibly agile with the canards and the thrust vectoring and the shape of the actual model, one person no matter how strong they are and how talented they are, couldn't pilot all of those particular, yeah. you know, it's too much. Um, parts mechanically. These days they've got electronic systems which do a lot of the work with the pilot. Yeah. Um, but back then they didn't when they were doing the test phase. So there's video footage of them flying around, but there's no actual full size left that, that exists that I know of anyway. Yeah, that's crazy. 
Well, well, Brendan, we've covered a lot of ground, which is good, and um, and and I learnt a lot as well about about the business and and some of the stuff that you're working on. Um, really appreciate what you're doing, you and your dad. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, I, I I'm very appreciative of the industry to give us the opportunity to go and fly because. We just take it for granted half the time, but if you don't do what you do, people aren't enjoying the hobby as much. You know, there's not much to enjoy. So, a big thank you to you, and I hope to see you at a jet event again, and I hope to be at a jet event again, and uh, I'll definitely come and say good day, mate. Thank you, thank you very much for having me, Andrew. It's uh, it's it's been a it's been a pleasure. Thank you. About to leave, already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking, we'll get away to a place where we don't know. Well, that's it for the Flat Out RC podcast this week. Don't forget to subscribe. If you're liking this podcast, subscribe now. Tell your friends. Let's build this little puppy up. Let's uh, go over to YouTube whilst you're in the mood for subscribing and subscribe to the Flat Out RC YouTube channel and Facebook and Instagram still rolling along as well where you'll see some other photos and stuff that I shoot at events being uh, up there. YouTube, there's a new, oh, a couple of new videos I put up in the past month about uh, the Wangaratta Jets event, which is tracking okay for me. And the uh, Seagull uh, L4 little overview with one of the owners, Dennis, uh, which is I thought was a good way of overviewing the product here and from the person that built it and flied it. So um, uh, get on board with the Flat Out YouTube channel. Now, big thank you to Brendan Joel for joining me. Really enjoyed that chat with him, genuinely did. Uh, learned a lot that I didn't know, but uh, really impressed with this smooth flight system. Uh, really, really impressed. I love the idea of having a touchscreen. Just makes everything a bit easier as far as setup, which we know can be a bit uh, painful with some solutions. But uh, so well done. Don't forget BoomerRC, B-O-O-M-A-R-C.com if you want to find out more about their products. As I mentioned, this is not a paid plug, but good bunch of guys, uh, Australian company, doing some good things around the world. So take a look at them. Now I'll be back next week. Not sure who next, next week's guest is going to be. Normally I'm ahead of myself, but I've got to you know, get a few more guests lined up. Uh, there, I do have some lined up. We're just trying to tee up times to record. So uh, plenty more coming. So thanks once again for joining me. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll be back for more next week.